a large proportion of the population goes to work for somebody, gets a salary or a wage, and then spends it on various uh, items of consumption, uh, which enable them to reproduce themselves. Now, practically everything we use is bought from the market, right? So we are used to a situation where most things are produced not for own use, but primarily for sale in a market. This is what you might call commodity production, production of commodities. A commodity is something that is produced not with a view to own use, but with a view to sale in a market on private account. This is the basic definition of a commodity. And of course, it's true that even prior to capitalism, there have been trading uh, activities. Uh, typically, once a surplus emerges, as we saw last time, the growth of productive forces leads to the emergence of a surplus at some point in time. Once a surplus emerges, that makes logically possible a class society where a section of the population can make the rest of the population work for it and then live off the surplus that is thus produced by the people who work. But it's also true that as productivity improves, as productive forces or forces of production, two interchangeable, by the way, somebody had asked me a question on productive forces versus forces of production. I'm using them interchangeably. Essentially referring to the extent of a society's ability to transform nature, to produce objects of interest to it. So this, this broad understanding of productive forces uh, would obviously involve the level of knowledge of a society about nature and its laws, its level of technique in terms of tools and instruments and processes that it has developed to transform nature. It will also involve the skills of the laboring population, which applies these tools and works with the materials furnished by nature. And of course, embedded in this is the specific forms of cooperation and division of labor in society, because that allocates tasks to different, uh, you know, elements in the population. So essentially, productive forces is a summary uh, way of referring to the relationship between nature and a society at a point in time. Production relations, on the other hand, relate to the social arrangement of production, like who owns the means of production, who controls the production process, what form do the products take? Are they locally consumed? Are they produced for local consumption or are they produced for a wider market? Are they commodities which are produced for sale? And so on and so forth. So today we are moving into the question of one of the important relations of production, which is the production of commodities, right? And while there has been trade prior to capitalism, Quite long ago, we know of historical records that suggest trading relations even between ancient Rome and the east coast of India, South India. But these are on top of a primarily domestic oriented production system. In other words, 
uh, as productive forces keep growing, surplus also keeps growing. And then this becomes, uh, you know, a situation where surpluses can be brought and exchanged with neighboring societies. This may have begun in that manner. At the margin of a given society, whatever is over and above the needs of the society gets brought to a point where it can be exchanged with that of a neighboring society, a group of people. Then with the growth of productive forces in the uh, areas of transport, communication, storage, and so on, obviously a wider area emerges over which such exchanges can take place. These exchanges initially sporadic, later on become more systematic. Obviously growth in shipping and other means of transport, Etc. Etc. The uh, general growth of productive forces in matters of transport and communication and storage gradually give rise to a wider area over which production takes place and gets exchanged more systematically than earlier. So, in that sense, commodity production does arise even prior to the capitalist mode of production, but essentially at the margin, not as a central activity of society. However, what is specific to capitalism? And this is how Marx starts off capital by saying that under the capitalist mode of production, the wealth that human societies produce presents itself with an enormous accumulation of commodities. So he, he emphasizes the category of commodity production as something that is a defining feature of capitalism. As you'll see later on, this also includes in particular uh the emergence of labor power itself as a commodity as something that can be bought and sold a person's bundle of mental and physical energies which is a person's labor power now becomes a commodity which can be bought and sold this is something that happens only under capitalism prior to capitalism you have commodity production but you don't really have labor power freely bought and sold you had slavery which is the buying and selling of human beings not of their labor power Labor power under capitalism is voluntarily sold. I mean, at least voluntarily in quotes, because in the absence of access to the means of production, uh, the individual has no way of living without selling his or her labor power to somebody. But the other part of the story is that the person is considered free to do so, something that was not the case in the pre-capitalist society. So it's a very important advance, the emergence of labor power itself as a commodity. But I'll go into that later. I'm not going to deal with it now. Right now, in this lecture, we will look at the category of commodity and how Marx analyzes the commodity. Commodity being the form in which the enormous uh, wealth created under capitalism by working people using nature and its tools presents itself in the form of commodities. This is very important. So, First of all, therefore, a commodity is something that is produced not with a view to own consumption, but almost entirely with a view to sale uh, in a market on private account. This is the first starting point. Now, so we, uh, how then do we proceed further? Marx proceeds by analyzing the commodity in terms of certain important characteristics of a commodity. First, any commodity, in order to emerge 
as a as a commodity you know in other words for it to be bought by anybody must obviously have some physical and chemical properties that make it useful to the person buying it so there is one aspect of a commodity which relates to its physical chemical properties its its natural properties if you like uh, and that is one aspect this is the use value aspect of a commodity a commodity has some use for a person buying it in some manner it could be a pen that can be used to write it can be a piece of paper on which you can write and so on so first there is the use value aspect of a commodity this use value arises from the specific physical and chemical properties of an object okay this is one but what is specific to the commodity precisely is that it is not something that is produced by the persons producing it for its use value to them it is produced by them with a view to alienation from use by selling it they they sell it they don't use it so here the focus therefore is on exchange so when a person produces commodities under capitalism the person or the entity produces it not for own consumption but with a view to sale therefore what is then relevant to that person or that entity producing a commodity is its exchange value its value in relation to other commodities the rate at which it exchanges for other commodities so one can talk about a commodity having two aspects one the use value aspect which is a function of its physical and chemical properties which make it useful to someone in society one or more persons in society and then one can talk about its exchange value which is which refers to the uh, proportions in which a commodity exchanges for other commodities right now this is where we start but uh, marx goes a little further and say all right let's take a very simple statement suppose we say that in the market you can buy um you know five uh, let's say you can buy a kilo of you know let's say some vegetable uh for the same price as you would be able to buy maybe an apple okay i mean so one apple equals one kilo of a vegetable now here money has been the intermediate the medium through which this transactions have taken place but money is only a social arrangement so when i say for example that one kilo of okra equals one apple i'm saying something more than just referring to the price i'm, I'm equating two completely dissimilar objects whose natural properties are entirely different from each other we do this all the time in capitalist society we are all the time buying and selling various goods and services and therefore goods and services are being exchanged all the time implying that there is something commensurable across all goods and services so what is it that makes the most different kinds of commodities commensurable in relation to one another in other words the the equation one kilo of okra equals um let's say one apple is both a statement of 
quantity and also of qualities. It equates to completely di different objects in a qualitative sense. So what is this qualitative aspect which could be common to all commodities? And here's where Marx makes the point that, look, what is common to the most different kinds of things that are produced in, a, in an economy? Well, for one thing, they've all used some natural resources, directly or indirectly. That's something that we can concede. But similarly, they have all been produced using some part of society's total labor time. Since in the course of exchange, you're abstracting from the use value aspect of a commodity, you're abstracting from its natural, physical and chemical properties, but only uh, looking at its exchange value. Clearly, we are now saying that what is common to all commodities, regardless of their specific physical, chemical properties, natural properties, and so on, is simply the fact that they are all products of society's labor time. They've all involved expenditure of a certain proportion of society's labor time. Because at the end of the day, uh, when you reduce production to its elements, you basically have nature and labor, including intellectual labor of various kinds, but ultimately it is nature and labor. Marx is now saying that labor alone creates wealth. He has never said that. But Marx recognizes labor as the active element in the transformation of objects from one stage to another. For example, you know, you know very well that if you kept, uh, let's say, raw cotton on a table and with the uh, machinery to turn it into yarn, but nobody to work it, then they would just remain where they are. So ultimately, it is living labor that converts cotton into yarn or yarn into cloth. So in that sense, living labor is the active element in the process of transformation of products from one stage to another. That's, a, that's something we'll come back to later when we discuss value and surplus value. But for now, the point that I want to emphasize is that in discussing the commodity and its twofold character, as he calls it, Marx talks about use value and exchange value to begin with. But he later on points out that the exchange value we're talking about the rates at which commodities exchange one another is really only the phenomenal form of a deeper relationship. And the deeper relationship is that in the process of commodity production and exchange, we are, whether we are conscious of it or not, we are equating the most different kinds of commodities. And in other words, this qualitative equality across widely different commodities uh, rests on only one commonality which is that they are all products of some part of society's labor time. Therefore, this particular property, the social property, that any commodity embodies, congealed in it, a certain amount of society's labor time, that is a social property of a commodity. And Marx calls this social property as the value of a commodity in the qualitative sense. So we are now looking, looking at it in terms of the qualitative equating of widely different things. Because otherwise, how are they commensurable? 
the quantitative relationship can be discussed next. But first, we understand that when you have a society where the most different kinds of objects are being exchanged all the time, no doubt through the medium of money, but that's only a social arrangement. So money by itself is not the factor that accounts for this. It eases it, facilitates it, but money at the end of the day is, a, is an arrangement we create, right? So ultimately what makes the most different commodities uh, commensurable and therefore having some commonality among themselves is this fact that they are all products of society labor time. Now clearly this is a big leap because how can you talk about society labor time? There are different kinds of labor. There is, you know, carpentry, there's uh, fitting, whatever, different kinds of labor. But this is the point, you know, you cannot, you could not have talked about this labor in general, abstracting from its specific characteristics of tailoring or weaving or whatever, except in a capitalist society where this is happening all the time, that people are doing different things at different points in time and there is a mobility of labor across different uh, activities. So there is the emergence of labor in general under capitalism. Unlike pre-capitalist societies, while you've had artisans practicing specific crafts and so on and being recognized as such, the notion of labor in general abstracting from its very specific concrete characteristics in each case is something that can only happen under the capitalist mode of production because that capitalist mode of production makes labor mobile across not just territory but also across activities. So this emergence of labor in general abstracting from the specific features of each kind of labor is something that is very specific to capitalism. And this is this this labor in general, because when we are comparing different commodities, we are obviously abstracting from the different kinds of labor that go into the production. What we are focusing on is that they are all embodiments of human labor in general. They all embody a certain amount of society's labor time. And therefore, this notion of labor in general or labor in the abstract, abstract labor as Marx calls it, is something that makes sense in modern capitalism. It would not have made sense in a society of purely artisanal uh, level of production. Now everybody is, you know, in a sense, in principle, the mobility of labor and you can move into different occupations and so on. And as capitalism advances, this is happening all the time. So Marx is really making the point that in a society of generalized commodity production, what makes the most different kinds of commodities comparable and commensurable is this common property they all have of being products of a certain amount of society's total labor time. So this property that they're all products of human labor in general, abstracting from their specific uh, nature of labor, such as each kind of uh, labor, we can say this, this is the social property of commodities, which Marx calls us value very important because this is when Marx uses the term value he uses it in this very specific sense people who have been exposed to mainstream economics get very confused because they have been taught uh, a very different uh, you know meaning by the term value and in general also people tend to confuse um, values with prices Marx is not talking about prices Marx, Marx is not talking about what happens on a given day in a particular market 
but Marx is talking about something more fundamental, that what is common to all objects produced in a capitalist economy is that they are all products, they all embody some proportion of society labor time. Because at the end of the day, production involves labor and nature. A part of the labor is congealed in equipment that you are using. It is past labor embodied in equipment. Nonetheless, it is labor. So at the end of the day, new value added is by labor that is being currently expended using tools and using uh, the stock of technical knowledge available to society to produce something new, something different, something which is not there to begin with in the production process. So this is something that's important to grasp that Marx refers to the value aspect of a commodity. And that's why he dispenses the term exchange value after a point and just says that exchange value is simply the phenomenal form of value. And when he says value of a commodity, he's referring to the social property of a commodity, that it is the product of a certain expenditure of society's total labor time in any given period. The other aspect, of course, is its use value, which is a function of its physical and chemical properties, its natural properties of various kinds, which can which make it useful in some way or the other. Uh, Marx is not too much going into that now. He's more focused on the social property that all commodities possess of being values in the sense that they are all products of a of the expenditure of society's labor time, which is ultimately the resource that is expended in any given period because everything else is available before. What is newly added in a given period is labor that comes in and works the whole year, labor of various kinds. So in that sense, I mean, you know, Marx is looking at it uh, in terms of what is common to all different kinds of commodities, which widely differ in their physical and chemical properties. And that common element is the fact of all of them being products of society's labor. In fact, Marx at some point quotes the famous British economist before him, um, Sir William Petty, who talks about labor being the father and nature being the mother of all wealth production. So nature is there and labor acting upon nature produces wealth, not by itself, but only using natural resources. So uh, if you take out the labor, there's always a stratum of natural resources, as Marx says at a point there in that chapter. Okay, this is this is one point. Now, once we recognize that the term value, which Marx uses in relation to a commodity, is nothing but the social property of the commodity, like all other commodities, being the product of expenditure of some amount of society labor time, then the obvious question uh, that would be, how do you measure the value of a commodity. Qualitatively, we have made the point that qualitatively, the commodity has value because it is the product of expenditure of a portion of society's labor time. Quantitatively, how do you measure it? So the most natural measure of value would therefore be labor time. Because we're discussing about labor being the commonality across all commodities. How would you measure the expenditure of labor? One obvious measure is the labor time. Now, clearly, one must be careful here because 
a lazy worker will produce less in a given time than a more you know uh, active worker or when technologies differ the amount of labor time required to produce an object can obviously change significantly so we are actually talking about in that sense uh, when we want to measure the value of a commodity in terms of labor time expended in its production or in its production we are not talking about extreme values we're talking about the social average labor time under average conditions of labor that you know go into the production of a commodity what marx calls socially necessary labor time for example you know, if you have a society where handloom production dominates and suddenly uh, you have the mills coming in to begin with the value of commodities of, of textiles will still be determined by the handloom technology as long as it remains a dominant technology but over time it will be replaced by machine technology and that will then change the value of a given amount of cloth so there is a process there but at any given point in time in any given uh, economy there is a set of techniques in use and these will give you some idea of the average amount of labor time required to produce a given commodity and so marx calls this the magnitude of value so there is the notion of value as a property which is a social property that all commodities have in them some proportion of society labor time expended in the production the magnitude of that value is measured by the amount of labor time on the average required to produce a commodity so there's some notion of social average or socially necessary labor time that goes into the definition of the magnitude of value of a commodity so this this is how much uh, we can talk about now but it's very important because in a sense what marx is saying is that the price at any in any market is a different matter altogether because that price can go up and down in any given day but marx takes off from where classical political economists have taken up the issue before him and makes the point that look the amount of labor time required to produce a commodity in a sense directly and indirectly in a sense provides the anchor around which the the day-to-day -day prices can vary and there are other reasons why values and prices would be different i mean there's something more complex which i'm not getting into now but for example in a society in a, in a capitalist society across different activities with widely different proportions of direct labor and indirect labor there has to be a mechanism for uh, equalizing the rate of return on investment across all activities and that then changes the rate at which commodities can exchange from simply values to something that marx calls prices of production i don't want to get into that now it's a bit complicated but it's not as if marx is unaware of the problem so marx is saying in the discussion in volume one of capital is basically saying we'll get to those issues later which concern the redistribution of surplus between the capitalist class and the working class the redistribution of surplus among the various property classes that is what this this price of production is all about but at the moment i'm only focusing on the commodity as such and i'm saying a commodity has two 
aspect straight, use value aspect, which is a function of its physical and chemical properties, and therefore renders it useful in some way. And value, which is the of which the phenomenal form is exchange value, or but value itself is referring to two things at the qualitative level, it makes the point that value is a social property of a commodity, that it is the product of expenditure of some amount of society labor time, which means that all different kinds of labor must be treatable as homogeneous for this purpose. So this, this notion of abstracting from specific kinds of labor is of course feasible only in a modern capitalist society where this kind of uh, process is occurring all the time. And in de-skilling also occurs all the time so that all kinds of labor are reduced to a commonality. But it's also important to say that when we look at the use value aspect of a commodity, then obviously specific kind of labor required to produce it becomes important. When we look at the value aspect of a commodity, what is relevant is that it is the product of a certain amount of society labor time being expended on its production. Okay, now, um, it's important, I keep emphasizing this, to understand that the term value, as Marx uses it, is different from the common everyday notion of value. How much is it worth? When we say how much is something worth, we think of a price, right? But Marx is not talking about a price. I want to emphasize that repeatedly. Marx does talk about prices. He has a very long discussion on prices, specifically on market prices. He talks about the role of supply and demand because most of us are conditioned. The moment I say economics, most of you will say supply and demand. And all of you are under the impression that supply and demand determine prices. And while I won't again go into this in great depth, uh, just let me alert you to the fact that, as Marx points out, when supply and demand are equal in the market, then they cease to determine price. When are they relevant? When in a given market, supply and demand differ from each other, one can say that if supply at a point in time exceeds demand, you might expect prices to go down. Or if demand exceeds supply, you might expect prices to rise. In other words, the relationship between supply and demand, whether one is greater or the other is greater, at best tells you the likely direction in which prices will move rather than the level of prices per se. Think of it also this way, the simpler way of thinking about it is if you are a businessman, you're working in a particular activity, you may hang around for a while if even if you're not getting the prices that pay for your costs, but you won't do it forever. As long as you can move your capital out of a particular activity, you'll move out. So ultimately in the long run, unless an activity earns for you a rate of profit that you would earn anywhere else, you wouldn't continue in the line of activity. In other words, in the long run, it is the average cost of production, including the profit on capital invested. That would be the determinant of prices in the long run. So even within bourgeois economics, even within mainstream economics, the long run price or what Smith and Ricardo, the British classical economists call the supply price, is something that is not a function of supply and demand. It is a function of the 
cost of production of a commodity because you know at that if, if prices keep falling below that then producers will close shop and go so in the long run equilibrium prices would have to cover the costs of production but under capitalism such notion of the cost of production necessarily includes the return on capital invested in the line of production so this is something you know that mainstream economics also recognizes but there has been so much of the supply and demand determining price kind of logic going around that people don't realize that this is something uh, that should be very carefully interpreted and marx does that you know in some detail in volume 3 of capital i'm not getting into it now for now my main focus is on marx's analysis of the commodity where to repeat we are saying a commodity has two aspects to it one it has to be useful to somebody otherwise nobody will buy it so it has use value this use value is a function of the physical and chemical properties of an object the commodity good or service as the case may be and the other is that commodities exchange for one another in the market but what makes them exchangeable what makes the most different kinds of commodities exchangeable is at the level of the of, of at the qualitative level this is the fact that they are all products of society labor time they have all been created using some proportion of society labor time which is the ultimate cost in a sense for any given period of production the specific magnitude of value is uh, most you know reasonably measured by the amount of labor time required to produce a commodity under average conditions of production not the slowest not the fastest but taking into account the spectrum of techniques that may be in use in producing a commodity one can arrive at the average amount of labor time required to produce a commodity what is socially necessary and that defines the magnitude of value so we have now looked at two things magnitude of value which is the amount of social labor time required to produce a commodity but for our purposes theoretically very important the understanding that value refers to the social property of all commodities they are all products of the expenditure of some proportion of society's labor time this is the fundamental thing so you know you can see the focus on human labor purposive activity of the human being in the way marx proceeds in other words he doesn't uh, get distracted by these notions of supply and demand how they determine prices at any point in time in any particular market i mean you can think of a fish market right morning prices will be one thing towards evening as fish gets uh, stale you'll, the fish person will sell it for less that's not the point right that kind of fluctuation in prices is is trivial i mean we're not dealing with that we're dealing with what are the more fundamental forces that account for the logic of capitalism and its development and so therefore marx is now focusing on that fundamental aspect of capitalism where commodity then comes in and by starting with his analysis of the commodity marx hopes then to make many things clearer but today we basically have only introduced the idea of a commodity and we have said capitalism is a society characterized by centralized commodity production within that one should more specifically say that under capitalism not only are most objects goods and services produced with a view to sale in a market which is what makes them commodities 
it's also the case that labor power a person's bundle of physical and mental energies that can be expended in production itself becomes a commodity which is bought and sold in the market this is quite different from the person being sold which is slavery under capitalism the person is not being sold the person first of all is considered to be quote unquote free individual who is free to sell his or her labor power this as bourgeois ideologues never tire of reminding us is a huge advance uh, over pre-capitalist societies under capitalism the individual they say is free to sell his labor power uh, marx has quite a bit to say on this and we hope to cover this in the next lecture but uh, the one point that can be made right away is that this freedom of the individual to sell her or his labor power also comes along with the removal of all other forms of security of livelihood for the individual which existed in pre-capitalist societies in pre-capitalist societies the slave was the responsibility of the master the master would feed him just like he would feed his cattle not great but the master would ensure that the slave eats and continues to produce for him likewise in feudal society the landlord extracts rent from the tenant from the uh, peasant but the peasant also has an allotment land on which he works part of the labor time and therefore ekes out a subsistence for himself so there are guarantees of subsistence available to you in pre-capitalist societies for the worker for the working people but under modern capitalism there are no guarantees of existence for the wage worker who is a wage worker essentially because he has no other means of livelihood so you know the freedom to sell one's labor power is what Marx calls freedom in a double sense. The, idea, the bourgeois ideologues stress one aspect, that the worker is free to sell his labor power, which is true enough. We are certainly not calling for bonded labor. So it, you know, it's an advance, certainly, no doubt about it. But simultaneously, Marx makes the point that the, labor, the modern wage laborer is someone who has been completely separated, alienated from the means of production, and must therefore find some employer to employ him if he or she is to survive. In other words, what you are calling freedom is, from the worker's viewpoint, also a necessity that he finds someone to employ him. Because the uh, guarantees of subsistence that pre-capitalist societies ensured the individual no longer exist. And so this is what Marx means by freedom, not only from the uh, ties that bound him to the landlord or to the master, but also freedom from the guarantees of existence that were afforded to him earlier. So freedom in a double sense. But yeah, we recognize that, yes, this is an advance, historically speaking. But uh, the bourgeois ideologues go too far in claiming it as freedom in some complete sense, because it's a very limited kind of freedom. Under capitalism, if you can't get employed, you can stop. You have the freedom to stop, if you like. So I think it's important to understand that the emergence of capitalism is associated with the separation of the producer from the means of production and transformation, therefore, of the mass of producers into sellers of labor power. And this is by no means a 
spontaneous or peaceful process which took place through some notion of mutual consent. On the other hand, this was something that involved very violent uh, period of historical development during which the primary producers, those who worked with the means of production and produced commodities earlier, I mean objects earlier, uh, were separated from the means of production and rendered into propertyless individuals who would then have to sell the labor power, even as the means of production got accumulated in a few hands. And those owners of the means of production then became capitalists who would then employ the wage workers. So that whole process of what Marx calls the original accumulation of capital or primary accumulation of capital, sometimes often mistranslated as primitive accumulation of capital, uh, but better ideally to be called original or primary accumulation of capital. That's something that we will get into next time because that, that gives you a basic uh, answer to the basic question. How does capitalism begin? In you know, a must begin somewhere, right? So the, the accumulation of capital required for capitalism to come into existence and grow. That process is something that hopefully we will spend some time on next time. But now, let me, let me before we end this class, we have another 10, 15 minutes, proceed also further with this understanding of commodity. Marx, and this is a bit abstract, so you'll have to read the chapter on commodity that I have written, chapter two, very carefully, and then read also Marx. Um, talks about what he calls commodity fetishism. How do we understand this? Now, very simply, for example, that whenever we discuss a market economy, I mean, and often we use the term market economy somewhat inappropriately to mean capitalism. There can be market economy which are not entirely capitalist. Okay, but we use a, we tend to use the terms synonymously in popular discussion, but let that be. So basically what we do know um, is that normally we think of the way the market operates in terms of prices and we see prices as relationships between two commodities, right? How much does a kilogram of uh, ladies finger or okra exchange for uh, Prinjal? or some other vegetable. So we, we tend to see in these discussions relationship with the two commodities produced by people, but behind that lies the relations between the producers themselves, which are not obvious to you. So, I mean, nobody's going to the shop and saying, okay, this is, you know, uh, it's been produced by so-and-so and so and such a farm. So the, uh, the, relationship between persons in society takes on the appearance of a relationship between the objects produced by them. Marx calls it the phenomenon of fetishism of commodities. This huge difference between appearance and reality. The appearance is that of objects being exchanged and therefore of exchange rates among objects. The reality is a division of labor in society whereby different people produce different things and some people have nothing but labor power to, to sell. And then that these, these things are then are the social relations that govern capitalism. So what happens therefore in this focus on exchange ratios and prices is that 
we lose sight of the social relations of production that underlie the apparent relations between objects produced in society. And this is what Marx calls fetishism. And, and he, he can, there are very nice ways in which you can apply this to understand uh, alienation in capitalism. Uh, for example, the very fact that uh, primary producers under capitalism often have no control over the prices of what they produce and sell. Likewise, with those who, as working people, sell their labor power, they have no control over what prices they get for labor power, or even whether they can sell labor power or not. So the enormous powerlessness of peasants and workers, for that matter, and in, and in fact, even capitalists, for that matter, in the context of the functioning of a capitalist society, of a generalized commodity-producing society, is, is one way to understand the uh, concept of commodity fetishism that Marx uses, the sense of alienation, that everybody in capitalism feels, including the capitalists themselves, because each capitalist always feels that he has no control over the market, that the market, you know, acts independently and he is often hurt by the way the markets act. You should, you know, in fact, even as we talk about liberating labor from the thraldom of capital, capitalists are saying, oh, these workers are such a nuisance. How do we get rid of them so that I can, you know, produce more flexibly and for wider markets? And he wants to liberate himself from workers, although the workers constitute the source of his surplus. So these are, you know, I mean, the way, so many ways in which one can uh, fully uh, utilize the richness of Marx's analysis of the commodity. Um, this is very abstract as of now for you. Uh, but I think if you read that chapter and read, I mean, the chapter in my book, chapter two, and then read Marx's own chapter on commodities, things will become a little clearer. And we will keep going, going back to these themes again and again. So don't worry if you don't, if you have not understood all of it today, uh, don't worry too much about it. We'll be coming back to it. But let me, uh, Transact a couple of more things before I finish for the day, which is, you know, we talked for a long time about exchange value, and then we said exchange value is only the phenomenal form of value. And then we said value can be seen both in terms of quantity and quality. In its qualitative aspect, value refers to the social property of all commodities, common to all commodities. This is the point. Value refers to the social property common to all commodities that they are all products of a society's total labor time. This is labor in general, not a specific kind of labor. Labor in general, all total human labor in general in society. And as I said, it is even possible to conceive of labor in general only under capitalism, where labor mobility exists and gradually you can see the notion of human labor in general, especially also as time goes on, the greater role of uh, non-labor inputs, missionary and so on comes in the, the automatization and routinization of work and so on. All of that, you know, it keeps reminding you that labor in general is a very valid abstraction under capitalism. But that abstraction is what we make in, in referring to the value of a commodity in terms of its qualitative aspect. We refer to the fact that every commodity embodies a certain amount of labor time expended in that period in society. The measurement of that uh, value, the magnitude of value is measured by the uh, 
amount of socially necessary labor time required to use it. One can then make the further hypothesis to begin with, which is that let's assume for the time being, and we'll come back to this later, that commodities exchange at their values. We're not talking about prices yet. We're talking about commodities exchanging at their values, meaning the rate at which commodities exchange for one another is proportional to the amount of labor time required to produce them. In the words, the amount of labor time required to produce a commodity constitutes the value of a commodity and commodities exchange at their values. Now, this might uh, not seem so applicable to an advanced capitalist mode of production, but in the historical transition to the capitalist mode of production, we had in many parts of the world a phase that you can call petty commodity production. Society of small producers who produce and bring things to the market. We are quite familiar with this. We are quite familiar, for example, with the weekly shandy in our villages. Uh, or if you take European late feudal society, you're quite familiar with the German household where the peasant would not only till the soil but also weave and spin his or her clothes. So, in other words, in, in that setting, in the pre-capitalist setting, in the transition to capitalism, people produced many things themselves. And so locally, people had a fairly good idea of how much labor time it took to produce a particular object, how much other kinds of labor. Hey, what is the difference between producing object A and object B in terms of labor time and so on? So as long as a great deal of non-labor inputs from earlier periods of production was not being used, there was a fairly common sense understanding of how much it took to make a particular object and therefore how much should exchange for in relation to another object. And these ratios tended to be guided by the amount of labor time directly and indirectly required to produce a commodity. So there was a common sense notion, historically speaking, in the society of transition from feudalism to capitalism where Petty commodity production was the nature of society there. It was understandable and part of the common sense of the population that you would not obviously exchange, uh, let's say, a bag of paddy for something that is less worth far less in terms of the amount of effort required to acquire it. So obviously then exchange rates between commodities tended to be linked to the effort required to obtain them. In other words, labor time served as an implicit regulator of the rates of exchange across commodities. So in that sense, it is not unreasonable to begin one's analysis with the hypothesis that commodities exchange at their values. One can modify it later, but this, this enables us to focus on something very fundamental, that is the relationship between the two basic classes the capitalist class and the working class. So Marx's analysis in volume one of Capital very explicitly begins with this hypothesis that commodities exchange at their values is intended not as a statement of reality on the ground, but as a very useful abstraction to focus on what is fundamental, which is the relationship between the class of working people who do the process of production, who, who you know, expend all the labor and the class of owners 
who do not expend labor time but appropriate the surplus by virtue of their ownership of the means of production this is very important you know i mean the whole point of why marx focuses starts with his hypothesis in volume one of capital about uh, commodities exchanging at their labor values at the amount of labor time required to produce them is merely to focus on the primary relationship between capital and labor later on he brings in a lot of um, more concrete uh, modifications which do not in any way take away from the basic findings of volume one of capital and therefore um, especially for those who have been kind of infected by mainstream economics there will be some unlearning required to see it in a different perspective so i think i will basically stop here there were some questions that had been sent to me uh, which i have to take at the beginning of the class but in the remaining time that we have i will quickly run through those questions there's one question on gig economies how do you understand these gig economies you know uber ola uh, this food uh, delivery boys and you know or amazon for that matter so clearly there's no there's no actually here here these people who work for these companies are producing profits for them the, the taxi driver may either uh, be paying rent to somebody for his taxi or may own the taxi but at the end of the day he's putting in labor time transport people from one point to another in other words the value comes from him but the owner of the business is uh, there is no particular owner but uber or ola which facilitate aggregation take away the bulk of the surplus that is there in that industry so you know the gig economies are as of now you know only one particular form in which capital exercises its domination over labor and they don't fundamentally take away the fact that capitalist mode of production rests on the expenditure of exploitation of labor in the sense that what the workers get can never exhaust the product that they produce the workers always end up producing something which is more than what comes back to them as wages and therefore there is a surplus that the workers are producing no matter in which productive activity they are engaged that's for the time being that is suffice because we have not got into those questions of surplus value yet so some of that will be answered as we go along there was this very uh, hopeful question about the pandemic whether the pandemic will lead to health being considered a social uh, you know priority and will there be some notion of socialization of health as a result of this pandemic we don't know maybe it's too i mean it's not easy to see corporate healthcare surrendering its profits so easily so i would i would not be overly optimistic but we can you know certainly i think the pandemic the covid 19 pandemic has reminded advanced capitalist countries of the enormous importance of the state and uh, also of the enormous vulnerability of a neoliberal economy so to that extent yes it is teaching a lesson but for us it's more important that the working people get these lessons and fight to transform the system uh then there is question of whether classical marxism is applicable to india i mean marxism is marxism and marxism is not a finished product marxism is an approach to studying society uh, which has an accumulated body of knowledge from past studies starting with marx and then later on many others have entered it and it will continue to get entered through practical application so 
question of Muslim not being applicable to India does not even arise. One could ask, what is the specific way in which Marxism can be applied to India? And this is what you know, various activists as well as theoreticians, as well as mass political movements, which are, you know, which owe their inspiration to Marxism, are trying to understand and implement on the ground. Um, obviously, maybe the reader has something like caste in mind, possibly. There is a Marxist understanding of caste, Marxist perspective on caste, but something that I will not get into now because it's a bit premature, but certainly rest assured that this is, there's no question of classical Marxism being, if so a factor, not applicable to India. Why not? Applicable to any society because Marxism is basically a methodological approach to studying any society. It takes, what does it tell you? It tells you to look at what drives that society, what are its internal contradictions, how does that society go move, what are the laws of motion of society. And by focusing on internal contradictions, because remember, contradictions are the motor of development always. Without contradictions, no development, right? But at the same time, for any entity to exist, there is also the question of unity among its constituents. Unity among its constituents guarantees its present existence. The contradiction among its constituents drives the process of development. And this is the basic framework that Marx, gives, Marx and Marxism give you. So one can certainly apply that. One can look at India, India's freedom struggle, for example, in a Marxist perspective. How is it that the Indian capitalist class initially was basically in a relationship of supplication to the colonial rulers, but eventually uh, as its contradictions with imperialism grew, it managed to wrest power at the end of the day. Of course, with a lot of compromises and so on that one can discuss, but how also, what is the role that the working class played in the struggle? These are all examples of how Marxism can be applied to understand the freedom struggle or to understand post-independence development. And hopefully, if we all survive this course, we can move on to a course on the Indian economy and where we will take up some of these contradictions. Um, Cause of surplus, is it because it's collective labor? Well, you know, let's first of all get this right, that in the entire span of human history, production has always been in and through society. Therefore, there is always the social character of labor, which is implicit in all societies. When we talk about surplus, we are saying that gradually a society acquires greater and greater knowledge of nature and develops the tools and processes to transform nature then the amount of, uh, you know, then it obviously becomes uh, in a society which can produce much more than earlier societies could. And therefore, surpluses arise. That's really all there is to it. And the rise of a surplus uh, is essentially a reflection of the fact that the productivity of labor in society has risen to the point where present levels of existence can be supported and there will be a surplus left over. Okay. Um, this question on literature. Can I give an example of literature as a mode of legitimation? I think, and the question is asked by somebody who's quite, who must be from literature herself or himself. Uh, I would say that uh, there's so many examples in every language in India where literature has been produced and these literatures reflect the times and they do reflect class relations. And they often implicitly and sometimes explicitly argue the interest of a particular class. 
they may not always do it explicitly. I mean, they may, for example, many of these uh, works of literature provide justifications for existing social inequalities or economic inequalities in terms of you know assumed attributes of the different sections of the population and you know, this may be conveyed in a very nice literary way but it doesn't cease to be a class message for that reason even language forget about literature when I mean, for example look at the terms we use if a concession is given to the corporate sector in terms of taxes we call that incentive if uh, a welfare measure is implemented we call that a subsidy so even language little on literature even language is completely imbued with class and class distinctions i think you know, i think I, I i think the point should be clear now uh, although maybe there's more subtlety to the question that i have understood um, accelerationist i think i'll we'll skip this question for now because many people will be lost if i take up this question on uh, automated revolution and all that um, yeah productive forces and forces of production i use them interchangeably and how do i concretize the notion of forces of production basically you know it is the ability of a society at any point in time to produce various goods and services and uh, to be able to control its environment to the extent that it can all of these are attributes of a society's level of development of productive forces and this level of development of productive forces is never going to stay still it's going to keep changing keep increasing over time okay research uh, what about a lot of research scholarly output which is pretty useless well i think i think marx wasn't getting into problems of how do you evaluate these research outputs and so on but let's not forget that knowledge production is very important and it may take place unevenly there may be no uh, you know kind of global uh, way of measuring uh, knowledge production at any point in time but i think that at the end of the day the idea of labor time in general is a good starting point to uh, as i said to explore the class relation between the those who receive their income from ownership of property as opposed to those who earn their income by their work this is the two fundamental classes that we are talking about and uh, for that purpose i think uh, marx's uh, approach to value is good enough as a starting point i'll i think end the session on that note um, again this you know trying to cover a whole chapter in one lecture uh, is not the most satisfactory thing to do but we that's as it is this is a very demanding schedule what we have so i would even suggest that we think about when we should have the next class so we may provide some time for you guys to read the chapters 2 3 and 4 and then we can come back and carry so I'm, otherwise i'm willing to do it tomorrow as well that's something you have to sort out yourself i'll stop there